0: Hello, hello, and welcome to another show. I'm joined with a very good friend of mine, Tom Fryer from uh, from University, who set up a rate. Is it a or
1: a rete? A yeah. i reason long and hard about using it because of that, because a rete is like, hello in in Newcastle.
0: That's exactly uh, what <laughs> comes to my head every time I, I, I read, read it. I my head. Yeah.
1: A rep means stop in French, so stop performance doesn't really work either. But uh, <laughs> we can get into what retail means and why I picked it in a minute. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's go then. Give a, give us well, give us a little rundown um, first about who you are and and what you do, and then we'll get into what retail means.
1: Yeah, so I'm. Uh, thanks for having me on. Firstly, um, it's always good to catch up. So if it's recorded, then you know it's a double bonus. yeah we got um so yeah i'm basically a performance coach or strength and conditioning coach i work with um a lot of different athletes um currently working with england sevens at the moment and then i'm co-director of um, arita performance is a company that works with uh, professional athletes uh, amateur athletes youth athletes schools um amateur teams uh just everyday individuals, everyday athletes, as we call them. And then we also do a lot of coach development as well. Um, so I started getting into this back in, um, probably seriously started taking it I started taking it seriously when I was about 18. And I learned what strength and conditioning was. Um, I dropped out of school early. Um, well, dropped out of sixth form. So I sort of gone to sixth form, not knowing what I really wanted to do. And then I dropped out. I ended up getting a job in the city as a quantity surveyor. Uh, I absolutely hated it um and then from then dropping out of that did it for a year but then after stopping that did every other job under the sun like floor laying uh laboring of every single sort you can think of for anyone uh security guard uh all sorts and then um figured out what snc was and started sort of studying towards that I had to go to like night school to get a qualification into get back into uni uh got into uni and then just sort of got as much experience as i could uh the first experience the first full-time intern position was with London Wasps, um, straight out of university, and then was lucky enough to get a paid position there. And then did I was there for three years, uh, left there and um, sort of started doing my own stuff, contracting a bit of contract work. Um, I started doing like contact skills for uh, rugby, which come from a bit of my wrestling background that I picked up in university. Um, And then did some work with Speedworks who was one of the top sprint groups um, in Europe uh, with uh, Jonas Dudu and a bit with the English Institute of Sport and around that time got involved with England Sevens as an assistant uh, S&C coach. So this is my fifth year with Sevens. I've been, um, eventually um, ended up in the lead role. Um, So I started that lead role two years ago. I'm currently doing that now.
0: Awesome. You've had some... uh amazing trip to them. I think anyone that looks at your Instagram just
1: <laughs> yeah, Instagram like the, the, the ultimate that. highlight reel. Your highlight, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of hard work in between, but no, we, we're very lucky. We get to go to some amazing places. Honestly, the first time uh, uh, we did the World Cup in San Francisco, it was really cool, but my first trip on the World Series was uh, to Dubai. Uh, so I get into this room, it's a huge room, there's a bath, water comes out of the ceiling, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> sitting there thinking, eating my breakfast, like what am I doing there? But uh yeah, no, we get to go to some really cool places.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Some of the um the pictures as well you take, you've got a proper creative eye, haven't you? Yeah, like,
1: I like you, you love it. Have like you, got good, you got a good camera? Um, I do have a camera, it's not a good one, it's just like a standard camera. Yeah. Um obviously it comes out a bit better than a phone. Um but then some of I'll just be on my phone. I do love yeah. I love exploring, like the first year when um we'd go to all these places that none of those places I'd ever been before, except for Vegas. So there's 10 places on the world series and other than Vegas and London, I've never been to them. So every like we get, you know, afternoons off here and there and then you sort of try and get, you sort of get like a, a day. It's not really a full day, but sort of a day off in the middle of the week. So that day um, i would just get out and explore um, and sort of try to keep that up as much as I can uh, when we go away, make the most of it really.
0: Yeah, yeah. So how are your trips structured when you're there? Like, how long are you actually there for? Because surely the um, athletes need enough time to kind of like acclimatise and get used to kind of the heat and all that sort of stuff, depending on where you're going. Yes, um, yes, yeah, so how does that work?
1: Um, so, say if we're playing on a Saturday, Sunday in the weekend, we usually arrive by the, the previous Sunday, maybe the previous Saturday. So we'd have, like, a, the first day we get there, we wouldn't really do anything, just get, um, basically just settle into where we are. The next day would be a real light training session. Um, so say Monday would be a light training session. Tuesday would be a bit bit tougher. Wednesday in week one, we might have, that would be like our toughest training session of the week. And we'd have a, what we call scrag games against, like warm-up games basically, against another nation if we can. Um, and then Thursday would be a day off. Friday be a captain's run and then Saturday and Sunday we play. And then it's always in two weeks. So you go, uh, it's always two tournaments back to back. So then you'd go from, like, say Dubai, you'd then fly over to Cape Town. Um, first day, you're just putting yourself back together and then you do similar thing again. But the, the week two is obviously a little bit lighter just because everyone's beat up from the, the tournament. Um, so it's always like that. So once you get into the season, it's pretty full on because you go... Um, Say there's about a four week gap between Cape Town, I think, and then the third tournament, which is uh, which was Hamilton this year. Yeah. Uh, but then once you get into that, usually it's two two and a half weeks away, pretty much two and a half weeks home, two and a half weeks away. Um, but obviously that changed a little bit this year due to Corona.
0: <laughs> so just um, just touch on that, then just for anyone who doesn't really know much about um, rugby 7, say how do the, how does the season run? Um, and
1: how like, often are they playing matches? Yeah, no, so it's, it's similar to the 15 season, but slightly offset. So whereas uh, 15s would be starting their off-season maybe mid-June, July, and then starting their games in September, we're usually starting our pre-season. So they'll be starting their pre-season then. We're usually starting our pre-season in start of September. And then our first tournament would be end of November. Um, and most of that's Dubai at the moment so the first tournament would usually be Dubai then there's uh, 10 tournaments um, as part of the World Series and they are always two back to back so it'd be Dubai and Cape Town then you've got Christmas so a little bit of a longer break and then it goes uh, middle of January you head off to Hamilton in New Zealand Uh, then it's Sydney then you're back again home for a couple of weeks and then it's um, this year was LA and Vancouver And then you'd come back and then it would have been Hong Kong and Singapore. You're back for, you get another bit of a longer break and then you have London and Paris, which is um, usually the end of May. And then, so then the season, a normal season would finish start of June and then that's your off season. But obviously this year, we were going to have the Olympics at the end of July. Uh, Last year, we had qualification for the Olympics at the end of July. So the seasons have been longer. Like the year before that, we had the World Cup at the end of July. So the seasons have become quite longer just because there's been like extra big tournaments How many
0: um, matches will they be playing um, or potentially
1: could they be playing in each tournament? Uh, So maximum you play would be six the normal format would be like three games on day one three games on day two Uh, but it changes quite a lot sometimes it might be three uh, one game on day one two on day two three on day three sometimes it's over three days Um, sometimes it's two, two and two uh, and it's changed a bit this year because the women's um, circuit has been coincided with our series more often. They increased the amount of the women's series. Um, so they played around the format to make sure they could cram all those games in. Uh, so, I mean, the key thing with the sevens is like, and all the players are, is it, like, everyone's just got to be so adaptable because you're changing places. You don't know, you know, every time you go to an area, you can't really guarantee you're going to be training on the same Training pitches you might use there before the same gyms, um, like the sometimes it's just a different stadium. So there's so much change all the time. Like the players are very good at adapting and and just being used to that, really. Yeah, I
0: can imagine. And on top of that, so between matches, if you're having three games, if the, if the lads are playing, obviously three games um, in a day, what's sort of recovery strategies get implemented between each game and then also between the two days
1: uh there's like the big thing is the mind so the games it's like tournaments are so sort of emotionally taxing because you're up and down through the tournament so you might um say lose your first game so you're on a bit of a downer win your second game, and then you need to win your third game in order to go through to the knockout stages. So there's a massive amount of pressure in the knockout stages. So then you could win that. Then you have a quarterfinal uh, at the start of day one. Um, so you might lose that, but then you've got to get yourself up then again for the next game, even though you're on a big downer, because obviously the aim is always to go as far as you can in the knockout stages. Um, so if you lose your quarterfinal, you go into the second tier of competition and the best you can essentially get from that is fifth place. Yeah. So then you've got a fifth place semi and then you've got a fifth-place final if you get to that. So the w- whole weekend can just be completely up and down. So as a player, they need to be amazing at just being able to switch their minds on for a game and then switch their minds off, do whatever recovery they need to do. Like sometimes some will have ice baths, but we re- we leave it up to them, you know, what feels good for them. Um, then each time you're building back up again, there's a whole like uh, hour-and-a-half process, really, um, in terms of coming back into the... Um, coming back into the changing room, getting strapped, starting your mobility for each game. Then there'll be a meeting about obviously that particular game um, and then build up through there. There'll be a warm-up and, and then you go into the game and that cycle will happen you know, six six times if you're going to do uh, a full weekend and get to a final. So it's it's full on and the ups and downs are like the, the toughest thing, I think, the emotional side of that.
0: Mm. It's one of the most fatiguing things, like that emotional fatigue. Because obviously... I know from fighting, having like obviously fighting in tournaments and it's there's so much adrenaline, just emotion, you're scared, you're excited, you're like you're buzzing, you're kinda of cracking your pants, but it's just like you've got just a whole multitude of um, emotions going through you, then when it's all done, it's just like ah, and it just it crushes you. Not crushes you in like a negative sense, but just, like, drains you, like... Right, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I'm not even playing, and after a weekend, I'm wiped out just from the ups <laughs> and downs. They're long days. Like, you sort of starting a day at maybe 7 o'clock. After day one, you're coming back at, um, like, I don't know, 9 o'clock. Depending on how the day is spread out, it varies. But maybe, say, you're getting in bed uh, trying to switch off at 10, half 10, but you're wired and then you're going to wake up early the next day, do the whole thing again, and then yeah. that day finishes when it finishes, and you're either going to sleep, like, ready to travel again, so sort of for that, or it's the end of day two, and then everyone goes out, has a bit of a drink, and, and switches off sort of thing, but it's, um yeah, man, it's, it's I feel emotionally, when I come back from the two weeks, I'm like, just flat, I need to switch off for a week, just to be able to get back to normal.
0: Yeah, so there's two things I want to kind of touch on there, but firstly, so do you have a mindset coach? So, in the run-up and the build-up to um, big tournaments, do, um, do the Sevens actually bring in, like, mindset coaches?
1: Yeah, we have a, a mental skills coach, uh, Katie Warriner, um, we have had for the last few years. Um, she's been on maternity for most of this year, um, yeah. uh, for maternity leave, but she's amazing. Like the, I think she's, like she's been, through the last few years, on the most, like, valuable like, members of the team are, are, like, from a staff point of view, I think, like, she's not even there full-time, you know, she's contracted in to come in maybe once a month and, um, you know, spend time with the boys, teaching them, talking them through um, how they're thinking, but just as a space to have that, um just to have that space where they're able to talk and she encourages that, they'll speak about their worries, their you know, their fears, and we did a lot with her leading up to the Olympic uh, qualification, like, some amazing sessions that, because the Olympic qualification, basically, we, uh, In order to get to the Olympics, uh, automatically you had to finish fourth place in the World Series. So last year was mad because every single tournament mattered. So we were trying to finish fourth and we ended up finishing fifth, which meant we then had to go to a playoff um, against the other European teams. So there was like France, Spain, Ireland. Um, and the thing is, we because we were the highest ranked teams, we were almost going in as favourites. And it would just have been like so embarrassing if we didn't qualify, is I think yeah. what the feeling was. Um, and at the start, probably people weren't really talking about how scared they were of like not qualifying and how that would feel for all of us. And she just had, like gave these sessions and facilitated these sessions where uh, everyone would talk about that, and then you talk through the other side, like how bad is it really? Um, you know, like if you don't qualify for the Olympics now, a there's still a chance that you can qualify at the end of this season, but it's not a situation you want to be in. It would have been completely gutting if we didn't qualify, and it was an amazing feeling to qualify and um to experience the process of how that tournament felt because the boys were just there like they were in the in the they were in the zone for the whole tournament and it just felt right all the way through, so it's hard to say, oh, we did this right, we did that right, but all those sessions leading into it definitely helped yeah, that's, um
0: I think mine's some coming like and as you say there. Being an official um, mindset coach must just be game changing because I think when left to your own devices, especially in what I can imagine being quite a masculine, a masculine team there. So obviously they're all big, burly blokes, like all very skilled, or very athletic. You kind of don't want to discuss what you don't want to be showing yourself as vulnerable, I guess. Um,
1: exactly. so, That's having, what yeah, so someone, Sorry, Sylar. That's what I say. That's why I think she was so valuable because she would, um, like, like balance it out. I don't think just because she's a woman, but the, her approach was very caring. It's not just like, yeah. I mean, it's nice to have like almost a woman's input in a in a very male environment. But there are a lot of like, there's you know, the team manager women, physios women. So it's not like there's not women around, but the, her approach is very caring. And in a, a very uncaring world, sometimes sport, um, that was something that I think was very powerful. With the team yeah. and and the boys are pretty caring, like they're quite thoughtful, so it fits with them like certain fits with the way they are and encourages that like almost their their natural um their natural way of being um but and and just getting that balance right between that that like you say the almost macho world of sports versus the need like the pressure that everyone's yeah. under and the fact we do need to care about each other 'cause it's it's tough.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's like they're saying, that teamwork makes a dream work. But secondly, as I said, my second point on that one was where you're talking about after the second day, obviously everyone goes out on the lash to celebrate. How, as coaches, do you do you give like guidelines? You like, well, you know, try not to get too rat ass, or like, how are you, how do you um how do you approach alcohol, like boozing with we're like the rugby lads because obviously everyone as we both know from our time at uni like there's a huge like drinking culture with regards to rugby so when it comes to that and then of course as a coach you know the kind of effects that can have on things like recovery sleep and all those which are probably going to be obviously vital um how do you approach that as a coach or
1: you just in there popping yeah. lots of champagne with them? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah mate, We're pretty—they're like, good. Like they, you got to trust them. Like they, sometimes we will have to you know, like just be sensible. Basically, that's the accepted things. And there's definitely been occasions where it's gone too far in the past, and everyone gets to talking to and rain it in and like. But there's a lot of pressure on like the players, and it's when you go out on those Sunday nights wherever you are in the world on the, on the end of the week twos like you see everyone all the coaches all the players from the other teams like everyone has gone through that same journey together so it, it, in a way it's quite close community sevens because you all stay in the same hotel you eat in the same dining rooms all the time you're there um, so you know everyone knows people from the other teams and gets along with people from the other teams so um, you know everyone's sort of out together and no, no matter where you are no matter where you end up like you'll just be seeing people from sevens and, and chatting so they like, they're, they're spend their whole life they're real disciplined they're ridiculously disciplined so you know, yeah. the are mental if people feel they need to do that to sort of switch off and, and relax then and I think it's sort of widely accepted that there's no problem with that and it's overall probably a good thing providing it stays on the right side of sensible which yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always As, I, I
0: guess because obviously just off camera it's kind of talking about a lot of the, the pressures imposed on, on professional athletes, especially when you talk about, like, the rugby players, football players, all of these, they're constantly under scrutiny. And it's like they can't almost go out and let their hair down because when people do that, it goes, oh, well, you're a professional footballer, you shouldn't be doing this, or you played shit on the weekend. How can you justify going out and getting on the piss? And it's just like they're humans too, aren't they?
1: Yeah, and that's like what we were chatting about before is that you know, everyone's the, the thought process in professional sports is sometimes really like, um, or, you know, they can't do that, they're they're professional athletes, they should be doing stuff like that, should we do stuff like that? And it's um they're people who play professional sports, you know, that's they're not just professional athletes. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: the obviously to get to the highest level, there's an amount of discipline required that isn't going to include getting smashed out of your face every weekend or eating like shit and all the other stuff. And um, there's a, there's a high level of discipline, even just entry level to get into a sport like sevens, which is physically so demanding. There's a high level of discipline just to even be on the pitch really. Um, but then obviously different people will have different ways about them in terms of how they push to that next level and how strict they are with themselves. And, and usually that will show in their in, in how they are as athletes and their longevity. So it, it sort of takes care of it for itself. I don't think, like some S and C coaches um are like the authority in a team. Like they seem to be like the ones cracking a whip and for me that's not the that's not the role that I think we should play or that I I don't think I play in that. I'm I, I see it more as like I'm there to guide and help and I have a, a set of understanding and expertise in terms of the physical realm. Uh, but like what I'm most interested in is mastery and how people achieve mastery. So I'm not there to make anyone do shit. Like they don't they're they're adults they're not i'm not going to be chasing around telling them what to do i'm there to help and and guide and if they want to um if they need to feel they need to get drunk like sometimes because that makes them switch off then that's fine and then if they if they stray off a path that i think they believe i believe they they want to be on then it's just a conversation it doesn't need to be a you know listen to me because i'm in charge type stuff i've got no interest in that i've got no interest in being uh, the authority because I'm anti authority myself. If people tell me what to do, I'm I'll, I'll, I'll probably not going to do it. So, yeah. like, I, I've sort of always thought that I'm going to treat people I'd like to be treated, and uh, I'm not going to run around, you know, craving authority just because I'm in a position where I could. Mm.
0: So, just kind of dying the back a bit now, I just want to go into kind of what's your initial um, sort of like screening consultation with an athlete when they say you get picked and um, get picked for the squad, like, what's your initial kind of screening, like, athletic screening process with them as well as, do you have, like, a sit-down conversation and kind of, like, I don't know, just question them on uh, stuff, like what yeah. they think their strengths are, weaknesses, things like that?
1: Yeah, we do. We'd have we'd have a sit-down with the whole, like, staff and, and chat to every athlete on the team, which would include new athletes, and you sort of, you know, ask them what they want to achieve, where they've been, and then, um you you get to know them gradually over the year like with the young athletes that we get coming into sevens the 18 year olds i'm not in a rush to find out everything about them the moment i meet them you know i'm happy to figure stuff out by watching them first and chatting to them almost organically and by the end of the year you've got a very good idea of who they are and what they respond to and physically what they need um but yeah we do like physical profiling um We'll test loads, you know. We've got force plates, we've got speed gates, we do fitness tests, um, strength, power, differences side to side. And it's the same with the company. Like the company is probably an easy one. So when we work with professional athletes there or, or anyone, even like just the everyday athletes, normal people who just want to train to get fitter, um, the, it starts with a conversation in terms of like, who are you? What do you want to achieve? Why do you want to achieve that? What, what can help you get there? What can um, be an obstacle to you getting there? Uh, what have you tried before? What's your, What do you do now? What's your current training state? Um, what works for you? In every level, like you know, what's your nutrition like now? What do you want it to be like? And what works for you? When can you train? What's your job? What stresses you out? You know, every the, in those situations is where we, you know, the we'd have like an hour, two hour conversation um, to try and understand everything we can about them and their life and their their situation and who they are, because we're not going to get to see them every single day and usually. You know, It might be an hour a week, it might be two, it might be three hours a week. But in those situations, we're trying to find out everything we can. Whereas in sevens, I know I've got time on my side. I can be a lot more. i have guaranteed these guys are going to be with us for a year. Um, realistically, in terms of whether they get another contract, then that's usually decided before the end of the year. So I know I've got to make sure that I'm giving them the best opportunity to get that next contract. That's how I see it. I've got, I'm trying to remove the limiting factor. Any physical limiting factors that they might have, I'm trying to remove them. So they're able to best express themselves on the rugby field, and then give them the best chance to get that next contract. And, and that's like, luckily, that's not my decision to make. So that's a tough decision, tough place to be. The head coach has always got to make these decisions.
0: Yeah, that's that's a hard choice to make if you're sitting down and having to like choose between two lads that you've just spent a good year with. Like, or yeah, maybe, like, take then, your
1: then be the head coach or. <laughs>
0: yeah so with regards to with sessions so i'm kind of quite intrigued by so you've got a whole squad of like amazing athletes obviously every single one of them is going to have their strengths going to have their weaknesses how do you then structure their their sort of C sessions like group sessions because obviously or All their S&C sessions, well, they're going to have group sessions, aren't they? So how do you, like, structure the group sessions? Or are they just kind of going to cover all of the basic sort of, like, fundamentals and then each athlete will individually have their own programme, which will then cover the, more of their weaknesses to help sort of level up their weaknesses? Like, how does that kind
1: yeah, of work? So the way, basically, there'll be, like, different levels of individualization that you're going through. Um, so the first one would be I would group the athletes based on um, usually whether they're what I would call speedy power versus strengthy power, like which is in you know, the technical terms. Yeah. But like basically your speed power guys, your speedy power guys are your twitchy, you're usually your faster players, um more likely to be backs in fifteens. Your strengthy power are your more like work horses. They're not they're Obviously, all the seven, they're all relatively fast, our sevens guys, hence they play sevens, but they're still a spread between and different types of players. So um, the speedy power guys would get more speedy, twitchy, light, jumpy work. Um, the strength power would get a little bit more strengthy work. But everybody gets a bit of everything. Like um, The approach I use would be known as vertical integration, which would be everyone's doing everything all the time. How much of they do of each thing depends on where they are in the season, who they are as an individual. Um, so then that's the first layer is I'm sort of grouping them based on that so there's a general structure to each each session that everyone's basically going to follow like the, the jumps and the power stuff and the, the heavy strength work is going to be near the beginning then there's going to be some um, assistance work which will be more focused on like uh, key areas like hamstrings, adductors, calves for lower body um, and then maybe depending on the individual there might be another speedy bit at the end plus maybe then some more accessory stuff like through uh, trunk training um, so there'll be a general structure that everybody's basically following, but then they'll be grouped based on their sort of makeup. the, the academy boys would usually just be in, in like an academy group, so their sessions maybe be a little bit simpler. We wouldn't necessarily use more specialised methods. Whereas with the senior boys, we might use like uh, slow eccentrics, um, like quick drop isometrics, like all sorts of specialised uh, approaches that are aimed to you know keep facilitating improvement, where they add in somewhat of a novel stimulus. For those guys, uh, and then the next level below that is uh, your individualizing based on like injury history. Um, in terms of there's certain exercises they can't do, so you like some people can't squat, so they don't squat. They might do a trap bar deadlift or so they might leg press. Um, you're, you're sort of even in the speed and power groups and strength and power groups. There'll be certain individuals you know respond better to certain types of exercises, so they might have that slightly tweaked in their program. Um, uh, and that's it. And then, so it's, it's, it's individualized, but on the surface, it's very similar in approach The the adaptation you're looking for in most sessions would be similar for most individuals, uh, but how you go about to get there might be different. And the exercise you use to get there might be a bit different based on a load of different factors. And, um, so everyone would have a very similar program, but just tweaked in one way or another. Really? Yeah. And then from that,
0: what systems do you have in place to kind of judge progression um, as the kind of athletes coming through?
1: So we'd have, like, we'd retest um, a few times a year. Um, so we'd be looking at that, looking at how things have changed. And I always say to the guys, like, this isn't to test you. Like, this is to test me. If, if something, if you've not improved, that's on me. Like... Um, I'm here to make the programs there to try and make you more powerful, make you stronger, make you fitter, make you faster. So if it hasn't, and I expected it to get better, then I need to look at what I've done in my program and that I need to change. And sometimes you get high responders and sometimes you get guys that don't move that much. And sometimes you you get guys that reduce a little bit and then you're trying to figure out that problem. And that's what I love about um, strength and conditioning is the problem solving, you know, trying to make it work for the individual, uh, try and keep everyone improving. Um, we, you know we've got our team builder uh, is an app that we use where we do all our programs from there so we use that that's the companies like our company got the contracts so i use it with the sevens boys um but then you can track all your lifts on there everything it tracks everything it's an amazing app um so th- there's a number of ways you're tracking but ultimately i'm always uh, what i'm trying to do is make them better at rugby i'm not trying to make them strong or jump high or whatever like i'm trying to make them better at rugby and i specialize in the physical part of that So. I'm trying to make sure that what I do on a physical side enhances everything they do in the tactical technical side,
0: yeah um,
1: so I'm judging is like my main judgments are how are they how are they going as a player are they performing as they're expect as they're expecting to as the coaches expecting to and then on a more like uh, detailed physical point of view, it might be how are they moving are they running fast at the moment are they are they moving to what seems to be optimal based on what I know they can do based on their their um their makeup as an athlete and then i'm worrying about all the numbers the numbers are way down at the bottom because they're they're actually so far removed from the actual thing itself so how much you can squat or uh your maximum force output in a mid five pool all of that is just to inform how well you move on the field so everything you do in the gym is to help you move better on the field and then everything you and so say like from a physical point of view my gym is trying to influence my speed and agility and maybe a bit of my contact skills and then those things are then going into the tactical realm of rugby, and seeing if it works in that environment. So that's why I'm always relating everything back to that tactical output. Really, like how are they as a player?
0: Yeah, yes, um, yes, man, interesting. So obviously you're with your um, you're with the England boys majority of the week. How do you how do you put your time then between that and Arite?
1: So it used to be that. I was coaching a lot more of a retail, so I'd be at uh, we've got a contract with Richmond Rugby Club. Uh, so up until last year I would have been going there uh, sort of Tuesday and Thursday nights and, and for some games. Um, so I'd be coaching long, long days. And by the end of last year, once I took on the lead role with um, Sevens, that became more challenging that season. And then uh, last season, uh, Richmond went down um, to national one. So then they wanted to cut their budget a little bit. So the easiest way for us to cut the budget was for me not to coach. So then I still have like a oversee the program and um, and I'm involved in that, but I'm not coaching down there at the moment. So I'd still go down there because we've got a lot of coaches from the company that'd be coaching down there. So I'd go down there when I can when I'm in the country and catch up with people. And, and it's just a great, it's a great environment to be around. So Tuesday nights I'd be down there. Thursday nights I might be down there a bit um, around that it's working on the business. Like um, a lot of, just conversations with people about um, I don't know, different programs, different bits we're doing. We do Lyceum and coach development events. Uh, we do, you know, youth athletic development classes. So there's a lot of conversations with our coaches in terms of helping them out, helping them develop the stuff that they're doing with us. So if they've got athletes that they're programming for, it's talking to them about those, those programs. Um, but It's long days. So usually if I, so like I was saying before, like I'm driving down to London at half four in the morning. I'm usually going to bed or stopping working in London on a Monday about 10 o'clock, wake up at six the next day and I'll, I'll sort of work till nine o'clock again on the Tuesday. Then I'll drive back to, to Leamington. So that, that I try and cram as much time as I can work in when I'm down there. Um, and I'm just, I'm pretty, I don't like to think, I don't like being busy, but I sort of end up being busy all the time. I don't know
0: why <laughs> yeah it's a funny thing when you're saying about how you're going to go back to that after obviously
1: yeah I don't know how man <laughs> yeah. I think everyone's feeling the same we're going to need another lockdown just to get over like the first it's week would be
0: like this would be like a good like eight week holiday for you this would be unbelievable but mm, it's ridiculous <laughs> those, that first few sessions mate that first drive
1: just not sleep <laughs> I don't sleep normal life I don't sleep that much that's why it's so nice when I go away um with the sevens guys is that I get so much sleep because um, all I'm doing is I'm just there and that's it and you know I go to bed yeah. early I wake up early but you know I do a bit of training I feel so healthy when I'm away and then when I'm at home I'm not sleeping I don't get time to train as much and drive myself into a bit of a hole
0: <laughs> It's one thing I find like I'm, I'm kind of sure I am up at five to get to work for six and can be work like all day with clients and again finishing late some days and then come back get into bed at say 10 getting to sleep for eleven, back up at five. And I find when you have them small sleep stacks, it just throws your sleep off completely. So yeah. with regards to you as a coach and obviously going between time zones can be really, really detrimental to um sort of sleep. What kind of um do you have in place for your for the athletes when say if you're traveling from here and going into the southern hemisphere or something like that for um, a tournament, what do you do for the um, the seventh players in their sleep?
1: So we'd have a strategy that I'd send out basically a week before. Uh, so this is what we used to do. So we used to have a strategy where um, I would send out to them the week before um, we go or a couple of weeks before we go and telling them what the sleep plan would be for the week before we go. And we'd shift training times and and stuff like that to match with, uh, how they were going to adjust their sleep, so if they need to stay in bed for longer we 'd be pushing training back if they needed to get out of bed earlier. we might be training earlier in the day um, so i'd send that out and that would be i'd just use as a uh, there's a website called jetlag Rooster that helps you just plan based on adjusted time zones and it gives you um the, you know the recommended um, the time shift so i 'd use that and um we'd have a load of like strategies when we get there, like the fact we wouldn't train high intensity for a few days would build them back into training. So it's obviously massively high risk sport anyway, Sevens. And then when you're traveling, the stiffness that comes with travel, especially long ways. So we're doing a lot of mobility at the other end. Uh, You know, sometimes boys will take melatonin and things like that. But we spoke to some guys um, from the EIS, uh, like specialists in terms of like jet lag and, and sleep and, and that sort of traveling across time zones for athletes. And it's something that, I probably like um, assumed, and I think a lot of the players would assume that. But because the tradition had always been to do like some thought out plan, that we're always doing these thought out plans. And actually, what these guys were saying was the best strategy is to get as much sleep as you possibly can um, before you travel. So they talk about like you're filling up your battery um, mm-hmm. when you're on the plane, you're sleeping when you can, when you feel comfortable. Basically, trying to maintain it's best to sleep, but it's not going to be great sleep. You know, it's not going to be great. So you just get what you can. And then, um, by the time you get there, you imagine your battery's quite drained. It's then as quickly as possible, bringing that back up to, um, normal. So I think the, the key thing with the jet lag is that if you, if you don't get your sleeping in sync in the right way, it can mean that you end up sleeping less on the other end. So I think you have to adjust your sleep time enough to make sure that you don't end up, um, you know, sleeping, For the first two hours that you arrive if you arrive at 12 o'clock in the afternoon and then you're awake till four o'clock the next morning because if you do that then you're probably going to sleep less so what they find is that your total amount of sleep is much more important to you than when you sleep exactly but when you sleep can um, can be a factor in terms of the total amount of sleep you get Uh, so i think when you've got a week probably the minimum especially a week is a decent amount of time to get into the cycle of um, the new place you go to. So there's a few strategies in terms of like making sure you get light. If you're there in a time of day, I say if it's usually your nighttime, but you get there in the daytime, that one of the strategies that you definitely need to be doing is getting out in the light. So we'll just go out for a walk or we'll, you know, chuck a ball about on the grass, something really low level, low risk. Um, but mainly the the most important thing is to be well rested before you get out and then adjust and get as much rest as you can there. At the other end, and then build up your intensity quite steadily. Mm. What's the um? What's the worst jet lag event? Um, when did I had I it bad this year? I think I can't remember. It was going to Sydney. Or, no, I will tell you when it was. When the first time I we went to Sydney, not this year, the one before, and I came back um, from from there, and obviously. I come back and my wife's had the kids for like two and a half weeks on her own so she's like bam you've got the kids you're doing bedtime straight away and then I was falling asleep at six o'clock like trying my hardest to stay awake I was like sorry I can't I'm falling asleep and I just fall asleep on the sofa at six o'clock for about five days straight So she me, <laughs> it. um, but it's just mad there's no way I could have stayed up I was absolutely dead and um, that's probably the worst I've had it I think I but remember the first going time out. I'd never driven, I'd never flown that far before. Like I'd been to, I think, Thailand was probably the furthest I'd gone that way. So going all that way just killed me.
0: Yeah, mine was exactly the same. So at Christmas, I went to Melbourne. So my missus is um from Melbourne. So I'm never there for Christmas. And so I tried to kind of change my sleep around slightly so that I was sleeping more towards their times like about a few days before coming so basically i was just overworking and going to bed really really like early essentially and then just tried to like limit the amount of sleep that i got as well so when i got i got to melbourne it got to like the evening and i was so tired i just calmed down and shouldn't sleep but my girlfriend had just been like living normally so when we got there, I just remember waking up. It was like three o'clock in the morning to like a a rustle, and I was like, "Look, next to me, my girlfriend's just sitting there with everybody's crisps, watching oh, a yeah. film." And um, and I looked and like, "What are you doing? She goes, "Do you want some crisps?" I think they're called like Smith's crisps. They're like these ridge-cut crisps, and she's like, "They're like her favorite crisps of all time." And her mum brought her a bag just for like, just when she got in, and I just wake up. She remembered it was three in the morning. I was like, "Are you fucking okay?" I was, like. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you get it, like, where did we go? When we went to LA this time, uh, going that way, everybody was just waking up in the middle of the night going for a piss about five times a night. Um, like, so nobody, everyone was waking up so early. Uh, so it's, it depends where you go, I think, like, it's which way you go, and different people react to different ways differently. Right, I'm gonna do a
0: little, uh, little quick fire. Go. So, right. <laughs>
1: Top five quotes. Top five quotes. Five or three?
0: Many, lovely, give right your I best. Mean. Give your best ones.
1: I'm going to be known for quotes, but five feels like a lot. Um, <laughs> what comes to mind? First one that comes to mind because I was telling a story about it the other day is uh, "excellence withers without adversity," uh, which comes from Seneca, uh, who's a Stoic philosopher. Um, and I, I love that. You know. So, we did actually get round to the meaning of a retail. I don't think we, we talked about retail. Oh, no, we didn't. We didn't. Go. That, that was quite a sidetrack. That's a good, like, God knows how long sidetrack from that. Yeah. So, a retail, you can count this as a quote as well. A uh, comes from ancient Greece. It means to love, live up to your highest potential. Um, so, you know, very much tied in with the idea of, um, of excellence um and that this idea that that quote that Seneca quote comes from a um essay he wrote so this is like a 2,000 year old essay it's one of the best things I've ever read in terms of sports psychology um obviously it wasn't meant in that regard but the um he's talking to this guy who's complaining about his struggles that he has to face in the world and then he's making a point like what would you be if you never struggled imagine you never ever got challenged in your whole life You'd, you'd never grow so, you know, and that's, uh, and he's talking about in a sense of God and he's saying God challenges those he wants to see grow the most, you know, so it's a nice, it's a nice article and it's, um, I it's had a good, this good exact same mic.
0: conversation today with one of my clients. Yeah. I'm having that today and that's what I said to her. It's like the Oscar Wilde quote is, um, the, the comfort zone's an amazing place, but nothing grows there. Yeah, and it's the same time. The only time that you actually level up and you grow is when you put yourself outside your comfort zone and you start putting yourself in those fearful, um, fearful times in those fearful situations. That's what makes you grow and that's what makes you level up.
1: Yeah, like, so then yeah, I'll tell you 100%. what we'll, we'll talk about the Rite philosophy a little bit because that leads nicely into that. So, the Rite, the philosophy, the overall aim that we we realize that is consistent between anyone, anyone we work with, elite athlete. Um, person who's never trained a day in their life is, um, and and what our aim is, and our aim is what we think of is cultivating heroes. So um, heroes are those who can face chaos and come back with something valuable. So they're like in all the mythological stories, in every story, there, the you know the guy that goes out to fight the dragon to save the princess or whatever, you know? like so, and and what that represents is this: um, in order to achieve something of value, you're going to have to face something. Scary and beyond yourself, and so it's like, well, how do you, how do you get good at facing chaos? It's where you need to face chaos frequently. But too much chaos too soon will destroy you, and that's why in the stories it's represented by a dragon or something like that because it can kill you if you if you don't face it in the appropriate manner. Um, and then the Taoist taught that um, you know the yin yang. So you've probably seen our yin yeah. yang logo that we use with the curve going through the middle. And the reason for that is the Taoists used to tink, uh, teach that the yin-yang, um, the white was order, the white side was order, and the black side was chaos. And they taught that you should live with your uh, one foot in either because too much order is boring and too much chaos will destroy you. So, you know, and this is a lot of stuff I picked up from uh, Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you uh, yeah. heard of him. So I, I spent a year, probably about five, six years ago now, just binge watching his lectures about <laughs> mythology, psychology, uh, neuroscience and and I, I binge watched probably about eighty hours of his lectures in a year read his book, and then at the same time, I was in all these different environments uh you know working with elite kayakers, elite rugby players, elite sprinters, but I was also doing personal training with normal people and a variety of different backgrounds and I was asking you know what is the thing that exists above the level of the sport above the level of whatever it is what's consistent across all people and then it was that this hero this hero story so um that's that's got to be a couple of quotes in there. I don't know how many we're up to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> two, two two more come to mind. One was um, um so it's a Zen it's a Zen quote it's a Zen part of a Zen story and uh, I think it's like uh, a Zen master says that um, before I started to learn Zen mountains were mountains and waters were waters and then when I started to learn Zen a little bit. Um, everything became fuzzy and mountains were no longer mountains and water was no longer water. And then when I fully understood Zen and I became enlightened, mountains were mountains and water was water. Um, so it's a, it's a journey I like to remember and think about in that, um, the, the aim in everything is simplicity. Um, and when you start something, how you go about that thing will be simple because your understanding is very small. So there's not much you can do. So you have a simple approach, um, and then as you learn, it gets you know more and more and more complex as you try and figure out you know make it more complicated than it needs to be. And at some point, that's going to peak out, and you'll start working back towards simplicity. So you know you can, but you can't jump from the beginner simplicity to the master simplicity. You have to travel that journey through, through, <laughs> through chaos, for se, through complexity in order to get to that simplicity. But the aim is simplicity. Um, that then, me,
0: that's like a. <laughs> mind-blowing that that's awesome genuinely that puts like my whole pt career in <laughs> into perspective you know when you start going through and you're yeah. learning about all these different like methods of training and exactly, trying to yeah. put them into place you like, well, why isn't this working Ah, yeah or like nutrition all these sorts of things, but, oh, maybe it's the carbs da-da. yeah and then you just get to a point at the end where you almost just go full circle and you're like yeah it's really just needs to be simple just simple yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's when I, when I first heard that quote, that's what I connected it with. Um, I'll do one more. I'll do one more. Let me try and think of one that I've got a few in mind. I think it was the best one. I'll go with Bruce Lee one. I just want to talk to the boys quite a lot. Um, and Bruce Lee, you probably know this one, is, will say, be like water because water can crash and water can flow. So, in the context of contact skills, which I teach the boys a lot just through the wrestling type stuff is, you know, um, that's a universal strategy is between no crash, go aggressive, go through what you can because you're bigger, you're stronger, you're more powerful or flow and use skill or guile or, um, you know, be your smarts to work around it. So in boxing, obvious. there's guys that you'll just be able to punch through and there's guys you're going to have to box. And then, you know, but the ultimate fighter, the ultimate master, will be able to do both depending on the um depending on who's in front of them and and the situation that's in front of them, so we talk a lot about that it obviously applies to everything in life there's times where you're on top and you've just gotta keep going and battle through and there's other times where you've got to sit back and figure like figure out your special route through to figure it all out, which are probably in one of them times now
0: I guess that does yeah very much so actually, and then I guess that almost does come down to. That is just pure intelligence isn't it when you when you when you have that ability to be able to understand that and implement that kind of strategy of attack um I guess yeah that's just like outright intelligence
1: I think it is, but I think it's interesting, like in sport, and like I say, what I'm really interested in is mastery, like looking at masters and like what is it that they do that nobody else does, and um i've got this pyramid um what I call the four eyes of learning. And so there's basically four levels to learning. The first eye is intensity. So, boxing or fighting is a brilliant one for it. So, like two guys have a fight, similar stats or whatever, no experience of fighting, the guy that goes hardest is probably going to win. All right, so intensity, bringing intensity is just like entry level, especially to professional sports, like entry you just fucking try hard. That's, that's entry level. Yeah. Uh, the next level is, in, is what I call intelligence, which, which is where you know, and you'll know this from boxing, because I remember this from boxing so well. This is a painful lesson to learn in boxing, is that um, you know when you, you know what you should be doing, so you can see the space, you can see the gap you can see the gap the guy's leaving when he does such and such a punch or such and such a movement. But your body's not quick enough to get there or make it happen yet, because you're just not got. You're not sharp enough. You've not got that skill yet. So I call that level intelligence, where you know what you should be doing, but your body's not quite able to keep up with that. Um, and then the next level is intuition, uh, which is like you don't have to have that space between thinking and doing. You just do. So the, like the space is there. You've already hit the guy because you just know it's there. It's just feel, and it comes from being in the situation. Uh, being in the chaos solving the problem over and over and over again so it just happens and I remember getting to that state like I never got to a very high level of boxing at all but I remember getting to the point where I was sharp it was actually I was getting into street fights a lot when I was young and I remember getting to the point where I was like in street fights just thinking fucking I'm sharp here like because I didn't actually box Um, I got carded but I was playing rugby at the same time and my club was pretty strict so they wouldn't let me fight if I didn't go to all three sessions in a week and like some week I'd do three sessions and then the other week on a Friday I'd go out with my mates and get pissed. And like, so they, um, so I never got to, like, I had a few like gym shows and stuff, but never proper got, uh, like any fights. So I'm gutted now because I was in such good shape at the time. But I never did that thing extra, but I was getting into street fights. I remember feeling so sharp and I was like, like Jesus, like this is, this is that thing. So when I read this, was from a Bruce Lee book, the, the stages, but he doesn't call him this. Um, I was like ah oh, that's that thing that's when you're there and you're sharp and you know and you feel and it just happens so the last stage is um what I call the all seeing eye um, so you know in the um, the the model is you know the uh, illuminati picture of the eye above the pyramid, yeah um, so that eye comes from the that comes from ancient Egypt, and that eye represents the god uh, who essentially is like the Jesus figure who is the all you know the ultimate being and what separates that being is awareness they're aware they can see this they're they're not um stuck in their the tradition of old but they're also not just trying to be all new they're, they're somewhat balanced in the middle so that picture is you all see an eye so ultimately that the, that eye for me represents awareness so it's only when you're at the you've reached the level of intuition when your body will act without having to think about it that you can then really start to think about strategy because when you know your body can just act then you can start when you're boxing for example you can then start to think about okay how am I going to strategically face this guy so you see the Lomachenko or the Mayweathers and like the way they feel out an opponent opponent at the start of their um, their fights like they don't come out and try and knock his head off they just come out and they just move tap they're getting the distance in and then they just ramp it up at the end of the third round they just start turn it up turn it up turn it up and they're, they're playing little tricks and setting little traps on them from the start just to be able to exploit that in round seven or eight or nine. Um, and that's for me like that is uh, this approach of mastery. The all blacks do it. They don't come out and try and beat you in the first 10 minutes, but then everyone comes out second half and they'll just blow you away. And everyone's like, oh, you know, they're so fit. They're so this is like, no, they've been solving you. They've been, they've been sussing you out. And now they're just picking you off. Um, so, I
0: remember um, a couple of years ago, sparring Josh Kelly. And, um, and it was very much like that. So I was just coming out and he was just doing little feints. Just these little like chopping his shoulder and that and then you'd react and then you wouldn't even know it. But he's looking at you and he's seeing what you're doing, and he'd put his head out like that, and he'd see what you'd come with. And then after about round three or four, like first few rounds I thought, yeah, fucking I'm doing all right, yeah. So I thought I was gonna get nailed. And then comes about round three round four. And He's obviously just put all of this together. He's just got this like web of movements that he knows you're gonna. Do. And it was literally, it was like fighting someone out of the Matrix. That's <laughs> the only way I can I can turn because yeah. he would obviously he'd, he almost like teased me into into an attack, but he'd know what I was gonna throw, and he'd gone and so he. Do a little feint. I kind of reacted. He'd hit me from that, knowing how I was gonna like raise my hands. He'd do a little cupping left hook, and then he's moved off and he's throwing about another four shots. And you're like, oh, he's, I was like, I thought he was there, and he's there. <laughs> he's hit me again another three times. It I was nice. like, what is going on? Yeah. And it was, and that's what
1: you see with like Lomachenko, don't you? Like he's and he's, but he's doing it to the best guys in the world, and they're not touching yeah. him. And that's what I always think about boxing like there's just so many levels to boxing it's amazing like I was like I say, I never boxed at any level at all, but i got I was boxing a lot, I was all right at it, and then I was nowhere near the best guy in my gym, and then my gym was just, my guy the best guy in my gym was just any old guy like you know you'd show up into the, like a serious amateur competition and get lit up by someone else you know, that yeah. guy would show up to like the um ABAs and get lit up there. The ABA guy would go to the Olympics, maybe get lit up by some Olympic champion. Yes. The next champion goes into the pros and gets smashed, and then you go all oh, this way, it levels up, and then you got Lomachenko when he fought that guy. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was he was also, I think, double Olympic champion. He hadn't lost since two thousand
0: and four. The um uh, what is his name? The only, um Big puncher, wasn't he? He's a big puncher. The, yeah, yeah. Um, he'd been knocking everyone out and he was literally, by the end, he was like, this is just ridiculous.
1: Yeah, and he just couldn't touch um, him. I'm like, how can you be so good? That's, like, that's, uh, but yeah, that, that so was... so hard, not it? Was, to hit someone get hit. He'd been hyped up hit? so
0: much and yeah. he couldn't, literally couldn't touch him. Yeah. Like, yeah, when you think, like some of the people yeah, that I was fighting against like that, Lomachenko would wiped wipe... The floor
1: with exactly. like and that's the thing, fantastic. like you know, in boxing how hard it is to hit someone and not get hit. Like it's, and it's is, the hardest thing, and then he's doing it to the best people in the world.
0: But then what knows about this as well is people that will still say that Mayweather is not good, and it's like, i like, listen, you might not like Mayweather, but he is the like to everybody. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. <laughs>
1: like, like Pacquiao. I remember when he fought Pacquiao, and I said to um, everyone that. I reckon Paco's hand speed was faster, but what Mayweather had was timing and distancing. His timing and distancing is absolutely impeccable. So, like, people throw punches on him and they finish there. And he could easily have that punch finish there, but he wants it to finish there because then he knows he's following up He's as close as possible. Um, and I was like, he's going to get him on time and distance in. And again, a lesson I sort of learned the hard way, not having to face anyone near on <laughs> the, the skill level of, of a mayor of a packer. But there was this guy, there was an Irish uh, gypsy guy in our gym when I was young. And he was big. He used to remind me of uh, Rocky Marciano. Like, he was like, out know, hair, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, like just massive. And um, so he probably weighed about maybe 86, 87. And at the time I was like 73, 74. So I was much faster than him he'd been boxing his whole life and um, I'd throw like a fast jab out and he'd just move like so slow and I'd see him, <laughs> he'd move so slow and he'd be coming back and I'd see he'd the punch would <laughs> me every time, it'd be so, it hurt so much and I'd be like, but obviously at the time I didn't realise that my timing and distancing was all over the shop." and I'd be throwing my jab but be off balance and he'd timing and distancing be spot on in order just to catch me. So, you know, timing and distancing is much more important than speed because if you're in the right place in the right time, you don't need the same speed as. There, I'd say it? that is also
0: applicable. That that is true in probably nine out of ten sports.
1: Oh, I, well. I think that's true in every every. every yeah,
0: speed. yeah, every yeah very much sport. so. It's your timing—it'd be like a rugby, be like just like a rugby. If yeah. your timing is a little bit off, you're missing that tackle, or you're not like catching that pass. You're not. Yeah. Anything so, yeah, time and diff- distance is probably
1: the biggest thing, and I think, and then it's like an entry level to the physical side of things,
0: yeah.
1: Like, so, and that's why I feel like, again, going back to s C is that's what I'm trying to move those limiting factors to the best that I can for an individual, but ultimately, it's the skill that's going to be the most important thing. So, all I'm going to try to do is make sure that they get enough opportunity to develop in that skill, um, the best they can, yeah.
0: But then, also, what you're talking about,
1: um,
0: with regards to um well me talking about my career is when you're saying about you know when you when you you get that first that level one of the, that first eye and I, I remember when i when i first started i was i was super fit i can eat, i could hit quite hard so i went for my first 15 fights i just plowed fellas i just literally get in the ring and for for the three rounds because you know like three round fights then three or four rounds um Actually, no, I went up to like five rounders, but anyway, for every 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 minute of every round, I would just be n- nailing out punches. Like, and I've, I've got some like gleaming gleaming knockouts because of it as well. Because I'd had a, a filthy work ethic. I used to train. I train so hard for every fight, and then when it got in, I'd just work. I'd outwork everyone. So you get to like the second, third, round. probably the first two rounds, I'd lose. I just I'd be taking a lot of punches because they had a lot of energy, but then I knew come that third round they would be gassed and I was like and then it's my territory and then yeah. I just wiped the floor with like everyone and then I got up to I fought for the British title I thought this guy that had over 100 fights and so obviously this is my 16th fight and he'd had over 100 fights represented um, GB and all that and that was it it was a really close fight don't get me wrong because again I still managed like so much how work him and if I'd had more rounds, who knows where I reckon I would, I would have taken up. But at the same time, he just outboxed me. And it's just those little things like just that little step off and always come with the cut, He's always finished an exchange. Those little things. He's always finished an exchange. always managed to slip his head out of the way of that 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 one punch that I needed. just managed to just miss yeah. it. Just miss it. It was, it was those little things, those little defensive skills that, you can't put a price on experience. Experience is, is just phenomenal for, for those aspects.
1: Yeah, that's why I just love. I love the subtleties of sport. And mm. yeah, like wrestling, I picked up that a lot. Like, the the coach sometimes would show us something and I'd just be like, that's, that's so beautiful. Like, it's beautifully subtle. It's like ballet. It's like this brutally physical sport. But it'd be so subtle and it'd be so, like, amazing how you could just think you're in this position of strength and, like that, you're not. And... Um, I love those wrestling little things.
0: Wrestling is, is so true for that. I, I find wrestling such a graceful sport.
1: Yeah, it is. It's, it's ridiculous. If you watch like the Russian, if you go on YouTube and watch the Russian um, uh, highlights from like the Russian nationals, because they often, like people sometimes say, uh, let's say so the case now, I don't know if they're dominant. They are still very dominant, but maybe not as they have been as much in the past. America are pretty, are flying pretty like, like hot right now. The, um they They would say they were like that that was the best that was the best tournament in the world, more so than the world championships and you watch the highlights and it's they're flipping over each other so in order just to score one point there's like seven or eight attack counter attack sort of sequences um, and then that just shows the levels of the game of that like in in when entry level wrestling. You try one thing, you either fail or you, or you don't. And then the other guy scores a point, or you score a point. Yeah. As you go up the levels, there's more and more counterattacks to each point, and you're just trying to catch that person, uh, that that little bit of misdirection, just to catch him. Um, yeah, the wrestling is another example of it. Yeah, wrestling is an awesome
0: sport. Your quickfire hasn't
1: turned out too quickfire. Pardon? Your quickfire hasn't turned out too quickfire.
0: No, no, you I was that as well. <laughs> you've
1: had about 12 quotes. So good yeah. Um, what yeah,
0: like well about books? Then we'll get into that. So I know
1: you're, you're an avid reader, aren't you? So. I love my books, yeah. Well, um, top five books, top five. I've probably got a good top five now. I put some aside the other day to be like, these are the books I'm going to read again. Um, so my number one favorite book at the moment is um, a book called Free Play by a guy called Stephen Nakmanovich, and again, like going back to the idea of mastery and what really excites me, this guy's talking about uh, improvisation. He's actually a violinist. Um, But the book made so much sense to me in terms of sport and mastery and everything that I think is is what mastery is and how you get there. Um, And it just gets the balance right. It really understands – that book understands the balance between uh, play and exploration and discipline and how the two things work in tandem – in order to elicit mastery. And too much of one or the other, basically too much discipline would uh, stifle the explorative spirit needed to be a true master. So a true master is always gonna be their own like being. They're not gonna be a carbon copy of someone else. And that's why they're a master, because people can't predict their movement. They've not seen it before, it's, it's fresh. Uh, but the discipline, at the absolute foundation levels of skill in order to be able to, to get to that level is is almost like what gets them to that point as well. So, you know, I'm watching the Last Dance at the moment. Like, I think basically everyone is with, about Michael Jordan and the, the balls, and it's just amazing. Like, seeing these. Like his one, discipline. Yeah, I've heard a lot. Of, like a
0: couple of my friends have uh, recommended this. I'll probably watch that tomorrow.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Like, the, but his discipline and his his work ethic and all the entry level stuff that people talk about, like it is better than anyone else's. But what made him special was all the other stuff on top of that. That's what made him really special because he could just do shit that no one else could do. And the only reason he could do that is because he tried to do it. You know, he could move in a way that people couldn't move because he tried to. So if you, it's all well and good having a work ethic and the, and the discipline. But if you don't have that, that play, that explorative spirit, you're not really going to reach mastery. So I talk a lot in... Um, promoting that play side of things, the exploration side of things, because I don't think there's enough of it in sport, but that's not to say that the, the entry level discipline and, and work ethic doesn't need to be there as well. Um, so that's one, um, another one, this is the first book I ever read, um, that really inspired me to everything I do now pretty much It's uh, it's, it's a biography about Bruce Lee and it's called a uh, fighting spirit. And it's about, there's a cool thing, it's by a guy called um, Bruce Thomas who's, uh, I think he was a guitarist for Eric Clapton in Eric Clapton's band, I think, or someone else like that. But He was a guitarist. So he was sort of like a master of sorts of guitar. Then he's talking about Bruce Lee's philosophy and and Bruce Lee is this master of fighting. Um, And that book got me into training. It got me, I got. I started writing my own training programs and following Bruce Lee programs off the back of that. It got me into philosophy. It talked about um, Bruce Lee being influenced by a philosopher called uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti. Um, So I went out and bought his book and then that got me into philosophy. And then like the book um, essentially is about mastery. So it put me onto this idea of retail. So like everything my life now is, in my interests and it's almost come from that book. And I went back and read it a couple of years ago. And um, so I hadn't read it then since I was about 13 or 14. And I was like, wow, this book is the, the best book ever. <laughs> like, you know, ever, of all that learning, all that reading about every, all these different environments and, and all this different stuff. And then I'm reading that book and it's like, so true. Everything in that book so true. So that would definitely be in there. Um, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb is another one that's had a big influence on me. Um The concept of anti fragile is basically that fragile things break in chaos, so like say china china cup if you uh If you disrupt it a little bit it 's probably going to smash um and then we often think that the opposite to fragile is robust, but something that 's robust would be something that doesn 't change in chaotic situation uh, so if you disrupt like an iron block, that would be something that 's robust It doesn 't change. Uh, but anti-fragile would be the opposite to fragile, because anti-fragile actually gets better in the chaotic situation. Um, so like the human body, if you disrupt it a little bit, you you know, you, you drop it from a medium height, and I'd say not medium, but like a low to medium height, you know, the tissues break down, but then the tissues get stronger. And so all biological systems are anti-fragile. And then when I read that I was like, Yeah, but all like the best athletes, the best teams are anti-fragile. When the game Blake breaks up, they exploit that, and then they they score more points. So everyone says about the All Blacks. As soon as you start chasing them, they just start picking you off, picking you off because you're leaving those little gaps. And like you could apply that to, Lomachenko and the boxes as well. Like you say, mm-hmm. you start to miss more, you start overreaching more, and then they just pick you off more and more. So, again, I read that and I was like, wow, this is um, this is everything mastery. This is this is sport. How um, many we were on three? So four would be. Um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, They're probably like a turning point for me in terms of, again, thinking about how broadly I thought about sport. That I read that maybe six, seven years ago. And um, it's a beautiful book. It's an amazing story. Um, but the way he splits up the world was my first insight into seeing the world in that way. So all this stuff about order and chaos, the foundations of that were basically set in Zen and the Art of Mo- uh, Motorcycle Maintenance. And he talks about, uh, the romantic side of things and the classical side of things. Um, and I'll, that basically comes splits up into like a mechanical type engineering way of thinking versus a fluid, um, flow type way of thinking. So this dichotomy between the world. So again, you yin and your yang. Uh, and that was my first insight into that. But it's an amazing story and amazing book. Um, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give two more. There's the, this one would be one of this, this next one would be one that I recommend and I buy I bought this book for a lot of people because again, it's a beautiful book. The message is amazing. Um, I've got articles actually, I've got blog articles about this book and on uh, the Arite blog and also about Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Um, so how I've linked them to for support. Uh, so this book would be Siddhartha, which is by Herman Hesse, who's probably my favorite author. Um, He writes a lot about Eastern influences. Uh, He's quite Eastern influenced, but he just writes him into these amazing stories and like these beautiful stories. And Siddhartha is basically about the, it's a fictional retelling of the Buddha's life. Um, But some of the key messages in there, again, like those light bulb moments that just live with you forever. Um, I think the thing I wrote in the article was about um, his friend says to him, um, I'm not going to spoil the book, actually. because I think if I tell you that, it might spoil the book a little bit. (laughs) But he talks about seeking and finding. So one of the things he talks about, this doesn't spoil the book, but it's the key key message. He talks about the difference between seeking and finding. And he says sometimes when you're seeking, you cannot find because you're like this. Whereas actually finding, you need to be like this and open and receptive to everything. Um, and I remember just reading that and being like, wow, that's, that's some powerful shit. <laughs> so that, that, that sort of lived me forever. The last one is, um, a bit more of a technical book, but something that I want to really push into and read more on is by a guy called, um, Carl Rogers, who's one of the top psychologists to have ever existed. He started, um, the humanistic psychology movement. Um, it's the book's called on, on becoming a person and it's his basically process how he works with people uh, from a therapeutic psych- psychology setting, um but I read the book and I was like, "This is coaching. This is everything, which is working with anyone and and helping them along their journey to become the best they can be." um And and that book's one I want to go back to and understand that more and more, so I can I can incorporate that more into my approach with sport. I think
0: awesome, mate. You'll have to uh, send me those over as well, because. There's quite a few books there that I've not um not come across or not heard of yet. So hundred percent I think you just sorted out my reading list for the next six months
1: anyway. like <laughs> yeah, I say I, they're they're in my like, read twice at least twice book but like yeah. pile now. So I need to go back and read some of them. I expect there's some Jordan Peterson in there, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, no, that's an outsider. Maps of Meaning I do think his book Maps of Meaning is a masterpiece. Yeah. But, you know, I think you could watch those lectures that he's got on YouTube. And um, you pick up most of it, but then I read that book and I was like, "Fuck!" it's luck I'd never heard a thing he said when I opened it, the, con- the contents were so complicated. Um, <laughs> right, the, the, the ground it covers from neuroscience to psychology to mythology and religion is amazing. So that, is, that would be, there you go, seven books <laughs> you got. Right,
0: so last two last questions and then we'll uh, start wrapping up. But so have all your, all your trips and that that you've had all over the world, What's the most like spiritual moment
1: that you've had? Like you had one of those moments, you're just like Yeah, this yeah. Life, life. So me, Yeah, fuck me. We had one um in Australia this year, me and Bibbs, um, one of the players, we rented a car on a day off and we drove to the Blue Mountains. Um and everyone like it was just after the fire, so everyone was like, oh, it all burnt down and we got there and it's like just this <laughs> huge expanse of trees. Like you couldn't burn them down if you tried, there's so many of them. And we had the, we had this amazing day, like this bromance day where it's just me and him like, in these <laughs> romantic settings in the mountains and we were walking. And then at the end of the day, we were looking for somewhere to go swimming all day and we couldn't find anywhere. Um, and we went on this, um, there was this ride like basically goes over this canyon. And as we're going over, there's these people at the top of this waterfall on just the edge of a sheer cliff face like looking out and we're like "Who they're fucking mad what are they doing up there and then the word the woman who was working for the company's like on the uh walkie-talkie telling people so then they go and chase them off basically like but they you no know, they're, they're far away but we could see them and then the, the rest of the day we went out into this tiny little village town like this amazing little nowhere town you'd never know and we just happened to go into a shop and um it, it like bibs just saw something of interest it was like some random like little bitsy shop and we just said to the woman who worked there, Oh, do you know anywhere you'd recommend to swim and she goes um she goes yeah there's this place back at near this whatever it was called world and you just go off just before there so we went off there but by the time we got there it was quite late It was like six seven o'clock sun was going down and then we followed this path and then we ended up near this sort of stream and we sort of followed the stream and then we ended up at that place where those people were on the edge of this waterfall on the edge of this cliff in this lake just looking over the rainforest and, we just, and you, you lay down there's parrots flying around your head it was the maddest thing and you know you got there completely by chance just by following our interest and happening to pop into a shop and ask someone a question it was yeah I could have stayed there forever it was the most amazing place it's
0: funny how the world works isn't it Like yeah, that's all we kept
1: talking about like you know it's
0: mad yeah isn't it and then uh, finish on this one so Have that as well. What's
1: the best session that you had with the with the with the Simmons lads? Like the best session, session sort of thing. Like where in the world was it? Where's B? Canada's usually like the the big one. People love Canada because there's they put on an after party at this place called the Roxy. Uh, all the teams go there. Um, Canada is a really, really good, well-organized tournament, so everyone, um, everyone always has a good time there. Um, Cape Town as well. There's a good, there's a good spot. But is there a bit concession? Hang- though? let's that. It's just like, like no, there's a little hangover morning afters. You're just like, shit, that happened.
0: because
1: <laughs> no, no, the, the thing is, is like middle of the season. It's hard. Like so, even the week twos, you don't go, you do. Some you do go pretty mad. <laughs> <laughs> like that I mean, with Paris. Like Paris is the last one of the year. So I remember Paris last year. I was like, right, you want to find a party, but then it never really materialises because it's like it's, by the time you finish, it's a Sunday night and nothing's going on. So you always like when you get there, you, you want to go and have a um, a big night out. It never really materialises into what you hope it will be, but it's uh, a. <laughs> They're good fun. It's a good fun. Like the boys are good fun. They're a great group, and um, I do like genuinely enjoy the company of everyone when we're away. Like we're lucky to have that sort of team. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, I think I'll wrap up. So I actually have no idea how long we've been going
0: on for, but yeah, no, mate, thank you so much for that. And um, where can no, people no, no, find out more about you? Obviously, so I know um, Arite do sort of coaching courses as well. So yeah, where would you like to kind of send people to?
1: Yeah, I suppose um, if you follow uh, if you follow me on Instagram, I think Instagram is Tom underscore Arite perform, A-R-E-T-E perform. Um, and then the company Instagram is Arite, A-R-E-T-E perform underscore HQ. Um, so like the, I don't put loads on Instagram like to be honest like you say it's more me just pictures of when I go to nice places every now and again i put a few videos up for the boys training but the the company account uh, we put quite a lot more up there like training videos sort of like um, all different types of um, how like also how to in different areas of training um, so there Twitter I'm on Twitter as well but all the normal sense I suppose you stick in the name and you'll find me and Happy to answer questions and anything, and as you can hear, I'll talk for days. But,
0: <laughs> well, mate, honestly, thank you so much. That was, yeah, thanks for having me, man. It was good.
1: I really enjoyed that. Yeah, same, man. Uh, it was good fun.
0: Anyway, anyway, take care, mate.
1: Take care. Catch you in a bit.